the 24th chapter of the Gospel um, according to Matthew. I'm going to read it in the New English Bible. Jesus was leaving the temple when his disciples came and pointed to the temple buildings. He answered, You see all these buildings? I tell you this, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to speak to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the signal for your coming and the end of the age? Jesus replied, Take care that no one misleads you, for many will come claiming my name and saying, I am the Messiah, and many will be misled by them. The time is coming when you will hear the noise of battle near at hand and the news of battles far away. See that you are not alarmed. Such things are bound to happen. But the end is still to come. For nation will make war upon nation, kingdom upon kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many places. With all these things, the birth pangs of the new age begin. You will then be handed over for punishment and execution. And men of all nations will hate you for your allegiance to me. Many will lose their faith. They will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And as lawlessness spreads, men's love for one another will grow cold. But the man who holds out to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation of which the prophet Daniel spoke, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must take to the hills. If a man is on the roof, he must not come down to fetch his goods from the house. If in the field, he must not turn back for his coat. Alas for women with child in those days, and for those who have children at the breast. Pray that it may not be winter when you have to make your escape or Sabbath. It will be a time of great distress such as has never been from the beginning of the world until now, and will never be again. If that time of troubles were not cut short, no living thing could survive. But for the sake of God's chosen, it will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. Impostors will come claiming to be messiahs or prophets, and they will produce great signs and wonders to mislead even God's chosen, if such a thing were possible. See, I have forewarned you. If they tell you he is there in the wilderness, do not go out. Or if they say he is there in the inner room, do not believe it. 
like lightning from the east flashing as far as the west will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. As soon as the distress of those days has passed, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall from the sky, the celestial powers will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign that heralds the Son of Man. All the peoples of the world will make lamentation, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. With a trumpet blast, he will send out his angels, and they will gather his chosen from the four winds, from the farthest bounds of heaven on every side. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its tender shoots appear and are breaking into leaf, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you may know that the end is near at the very door. I tell you this, the present generation will live to see it all. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. But about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, only the Father. As things were in Noah's days, so will they be when the Son of Man comes. In the days before the flood, they ate and drank and married until the day that Noah went into the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. That is how it will be when the Son of Man comes. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Keep awake then, for you do not know on what day your Lord is to come. Remember, if the householder had known at what time of night the burglar was coming, he would have kept awake and not have let his house be broken into. Hold yourselves ready, therefore, because the Son of Man will come at the time you least expect him. Who is the trusty servant? the sensible man charged by his master to manage his household staff and issue their rations at the proper time. Happy the servant who is found at his task when his master comes. I tell you this, he will be put in charge of all his master's property. But if he is a bad servant and says to himself, the master is a long time coming, and begins to bully the other servants and to eat and drink with his drunken friends, then the master will arrive on a day that that servant does not expect, at a time he does not know, and will cut him in pieces. Thus he will find his place among the hypocrites, where there is wailing and grinding of teeth. By the chart here on the wall, you will see that we are in the third major uh, division of Matthew's Gospel, which we have entitled the realization of the kingdom to be through Calvary. That is, this whole division of Matthew is to do with the way that God's kingdom is to be brought in and to be established. It is, of course, through the cross of Christ, through Christ crucified. Now, we last week stopped in the middle of the fifth subdivision, the final rejection of God's King and Messiah by the Jews. 
there were three sections we had dealt with in this subdivision. The first was in uh, chapter 21 from verse 1 to 11, the king's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You remember when all the people cut down the branches of the trees and the palm trees and laid them before the Lord and the Lord rode in on the ass. Uh, that was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. And in the second section we dealt with was from verse 12 to 17, the cleansing of the temple and the genuine meeting of need. You will remember we talked, we cannot say much about it this evening, it's in your notes, um, about the way that the temple had become a commercial proposition. It had become in fact for a, a, a number of people, including many of the priests, a very lucrative business indeed. And they had turned quite a part of the precincts of the temple into a kind of petticoat lane, a kind of open market with stalls everywhere, ch tables and chairs, money lenders, uh, and so on. And then there were the oxen tethered, and there were sheep tethered, and there were the, um, the caged pigeons. The whole thing was one great mass of business. And uh, you will remember how the Lord just let his fury loose upon it all and turned the tables upside down and threw over the chairs, scattered the money, freed the oxen and the sheep, uh, told them to take out the caged pigeons and all the rest of it. And then how the temple for one single moment uh, regained uh, some of its former glory when it fulfilled its divine objective as the meeting place between God and man, between the divine power and love and mercy of God and human helplessness and bondage and need. When those, the poor and the lame and the blind came to the Lord in the temple and were healed. It was at that point the beginning of the intrigue started which were to lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both parties, were very upset and indignant about the Lord's behavior in the temple, and especially at the way the children kept on shouting out his praise. It was this that um, uh, prompted their displeasure, and they said to the Lord, don't you hear what these children are saying? And the Lord said, yes, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thy praise is perfected. Um, the third section was from verse uh, 18 to 22 in this chapter and it was the withering of the fig tree. Now there were, you remember I pointed out to you there's a very common fallacy, a very common error about the withering of the fig tree and that is that you often hear especially humanists bring this up. They say, well of course they say, um, the Lord was only a, a mortal human being like us. Look at how irritated he became when he was hungry. He got an empty stomach, went up to a tree, found no fruit on it, got so irritated with it, he lost his temper and cursed the thing. Is that like the Son of God? Well of course there's nothing further from the truth. The Lord could have provided a meal they could have fed every single person within a few miles radius if he had wanted to. He'd done it two or three times before and he could do it again. The fact of the matter was that the fig tree was and um, always had been a symbol of the covenant people of God. And here was the king and the Messiah 
of the covenant people of God coming to his city, coming to his temple, coming to his people, and finding nothing. He came unto his own, and they that were his own received him not. And therefore the cursing of the fig tree and its withering up within an instant was a symbolic act that the judgment of God's ancient covenant people was at the threshold. It, we, were, we are in fact on the very, the very threshold of God's turning away from his ancient covenant people. Now I said to you last week that in the whole of this section from chapter, beginning of chapter 21 right through to the end of chapter 23, you could not fail to sense the rising tension. From this point, from uh, verse 23 of chapter 21, we start on a series of questions. First one group come with questions, then another group come with questions, then someone else comes with a question. And every one of the questions may seem to us at first sight just to be normal questions, but there were involved theological overtones. And in fact, they were the most cleverly thought-out questions. They were fox-like in their cunning. Because whatever the Lord answered, if he gave a straightforward answer, without thought, a spontaneous answer, he would have been caught. There would have been no more need to do anything. He would have been caught in an instant. And so this, in fact, is a most remarkable section. Now, we come this fourth section from verse 23 of chapter 21. If you haven't got a Bible, share it with the person next to you, will you? Because we shall be look, referring continually to it. From the, verse 23 of chapter 21 to verse 14 of chapter 22. Now, I've entitled this, The Chief Priests and Elders. Now, here we have the chief priests, who were Sadducees for the most part, and the elders of the people, who were for the most part, they could be Sadducees as well, um, some of them uh, were Pharisees. Now, they come with a question. Now, I want you to note that their question, they asked the Lord, they asked Christ a question about his authority. Now, will you note very carefully that they do not question the presence of Christ's authority, but they question the source of his authority um, uh, more than anything else. Not his presence, but his source. In other words, they accepted without question that the Lord Jesus Christ had supernatural authority. There was something about his bearing, something about his character, something about his preaching, something about his whole manner that was absolutely authoritative. Now they never questioned that. That would have been foolish. Stupidity. But what they questioned was, where did it come from? So you notice the question it is very simple. They say to the Lord, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority? What is the source of this authority? They were casting an aspersion upon the source of his authority. In another place, of course, they said, by Beelzebub, prince of the devils, he casts out devils. This is what they were trying to get at. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing is, will you notice that Christ never answers them? He, he parries their question. 
with a very perplexing question of his own. He asks them about John the Baptist, and it was brilliant, and it's the only word for it, it was absolutely brilliant, because just as they were trying to corner him, so he simply turned the tables round and said, now then, what about John the Baptist's ministry? Was it from heaven or from earth? He knew very well that the chief priests and elders believed that it was of the earth. It wasn't of God at all. And uh, it says here in this section, they dared not say it was of the earth. They would have been torn to pieces by the people all listening around. For everyone looked upon John the Baptist as a great hero and a great prophet, a martyr. So they dared not answer. Nor did they dare say, it's from heaven. Because then the Lord would have said to men, why didn't you obey him then? So they were caught. Now the Lord goes on with three parables. And the three parables he gives, every one of them has the same lesson. Now you must remember that these poor chief priests and elders were simply unclothed in a sense. The, the Lord's question to them had knocked them clean off balance. Now the Lord drives home the lesson with three parables right to the point. And what are the three parables about? The three parables are all illustrating the rejection of the kingdom of heaven by the leaders of the Jewish people. So, or by the Jewish nation represented by their leaders. First, he tells them the story of two men, two sons of a father. The father said, do so and so, and one said... I won't do it. He went away and thought about it and went off and did it. The second one said, I'll do it. He went away and didn't do it. And the Lord said, which of the two is commended? They said, of course, the one who said he wouldn't do it and did it. And the Lord said, just so. And harlots, prostitutes and tax collectors are going into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, the people who have lived, lived a sinful life and rejected the Lord said, I don't want anything of it. They've thought again. And they're going into the kingdom of God. But those who said, we will do the will of God, we accept the law, we believe in the oracles of God, and so on and so forth, they are saying it all, but they don't do anything. What a searching story, what a searching parable. It must have hit them uh, well and truly. Uh, if you look at verse 31, you have it truly... I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. The second story he told them was much nearer the bone. Indeed, uh, he told them a story of a man who was a very rich man and he bought a vineyard and he planted vi uh, uh, vine trees everywhere and then he dug a, a, um, uh, a wine press and he built a tower so that it could be guarded from foxes and other marauders and robbers. He did all these things and um, uh, then he waited. He, 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 he um, let out the vineyard and he waited for the fruit. When he came round to the, to the harvest, he sent some servants and uh, when the servants came, the tenants took the servants, they beat one, they killed the other and they stoned the third. So when the news came back to the owner, he sent off another more important servant, probably the stewards of, the, of his very uh, big um, uh, household. And this time, when the stewards came, they did the same to them. So then he thought, now I'll send my son. 
and surely when they see my son they will respect him and will give him uh, the fruits of the vineyard. But when they saw the son coming they said, ha, here comes the heir, let us kill him. And of course the Lord Jesus turns round to them all and says, now then, what do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Now notice the cleverness of the Lord Jesus, the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps cleverness seems a, a rather crude way of putting it concerning our Lord. But notice wisdom, his, his brilliance. You see, he makes them answer the questions. Now I have often thought, as one old commentator put it, that it's probable that the chief priests and the scribes never answered a thing. It's probably the crowd that did the answering much to the embarrassment of the chief priests and scribes. So the Lord said to the chief priests and scribes, and what do you think the owner did? And the crowd roared that, kill the miserable wretches, <laughs> you see. So then the chief priests, and they just absolutely felt all hot and bothered. I think that's more than true, more than likely, that the chief priests and scribes didn't exactly answer the question fully. They were too embarrassed. The crowd roared back the answer, and look how they put it. Can you imagine the chief priests, I don't think, would say it like this. They said to him, verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. But you see, the lesson had gone home. The chief priests and the, and the elders knew exactly who he was talking about. It's extraordinary. They knew exactly at whom the parable was aimed. And by the way, there is one little point here, not that I think it's right for us to aim things at one another, but it is true the Lord Jesus aimed these things well and truly at them. There was no spontaneous speaking here. These were actual sort of arrows directed at them. Now you will notice that in verse 42 and 43, the Lord Jesus explains the parable, so there's no mistake about it. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? Oh, how embarrassing it must have been for them. How humiliating. The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the, of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. There is the interpretation of the parable. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> I don't see how they could fail to, but still. <laughs> Chapter 22 is the third parable, and this is another wonderful one, another very rich man. And uh, he has a wedding, a feast, a marriage feast for his son, and he sends out all the very, very polite uh, invitations to all the very, very polite people. And everyone gets their invitation to the marriage feast, and they all made light of it. There's an interesting way. It all made light of it. They didn't take it seriously. Uh, some I've made ready my dinner, verse 4. My oxen and my fat calves are killed, said the, the, uh, um, uh, the rich man. Verse 5. But they made light of it and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but the invited were not worthy. Now mark it. The invited were not worthy. That's the point of the whole parable. Go therefore to the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
Now, the Lord Jesus goes on to tell a, a very interesting little um, uh, sideline to this. He says that there was there in the, in the wedding feast one man who hadn't got a wedding garment on. You see, all these people, many of them were very poor people. So as they came through the door, one of the stewards of the big household gave them a wedding garment. So however ragged they were underneath, they all looked beautiful outside. They were covered. And they could all sit down. They might have been a very refined person and a very poor person, a very rich person and a very poor one. And they could all sit down together and enjoy it. No one knew who it was underneath, you see, uh, in a sense. They, they, they could all sit. But this man evidently thought, I take it, that he certainly wasn't in rags. I suppose he was rather more better dressed than the others. So he didn't want a wedding garment. He declined it. He preferred to wear his own. And this was the person that the rich man, the king, noticed and said, friend, why haven't you got that wedding garment on? And the man was speechless, I should think so. So he was taken up and cast into what the Lord calls outer darkness. Now again, this is a third parable illustrating the rejection of the kingdom of heaven by the Jewish nation as represented in their leaders. I say that carefully because not by, uh, not by, all, by any means did all the Jewish people reject their king and Messiah. Um, <clears throat> now, um, you will notice in verse 14 that there is a little um, sentence which has caused people much, much concern. For many are called and few are chosen. Here is the Lord's explanation of the third parable. For many are called and, and, and few are chosen. If you turn the word called as it has uh, been in uh, the Amplified into invited, you've got the whole thing. For many are invited, but few are chosen. The trouble with the word called is that many people say, think of the whole scriptural idea of calling and then they can't quite work it out. Are not the called the elect of God? It says so. Though he, those whom he chose, he called, and so on and so on, you see. But it's those whom he invited, not all those who are invited are chosen. In other words, the, the Lord knows those who respond. If you've responded to the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've responded to the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're one of the elects of God. You're one of those who's been given a wedding garment. You've got a right to sit at the king's feast. You're in. You're not dressed in your own self-righteousness. You're not trusting in your own works. You're in because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and you're sitting in his presence, gloriously clothed in, in a garment that is better than anything that you could make robe of Christ's own purity and holiness and righteousness. Few, uh, many are invited, few are chosen. Mark it, uh, those invited were not worthy. Now the Jewish people were the invited people. Get that clear. The Jewish people were the invited people. They were God's ancient covenant people. And God invited them. It wasn't as if God was making a great mistake. Some people have got the idea that God had in his mind that he would make an earthly kingdom on this earth with an earthly king and an earthly throne and an earthly center and that the Jewish people, if they'd only accepted it, would have got all that. This is, in my estimation, nonsense. The Lord never, ever thought of a kingdom anything other than a spiritual kingdom. 
And that doesn't mean that one that's not practical or concrete. But it was of heaven. That's the point. It wasn't an earthly thing of the earth, but of heaven. It was first offered to the Jewish people as the covenant people of God. If they had accepted it and been converted, oh, the story might have been a different story, but they were not. They were not. They did not accept it and they were not converted. The invited were not worthy. So these three parables all illustrate the same great lesson that the kingdom of heaven was rejected by the Jewish nation. Now we go on to the next section um, which I have entitled the Pharisees and the Herodians question. Now this time it's not the chief priests and the elders who for the most part were Sadducees. This time it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now this is from verse chapter 22 verse 15 to <coughs> 22. Verse 15 to 22. Now, will you note one or two things about this section? The Pharisees, now the Pharisees plan to trap Christ. Now the Pharisees, turn of the Pharisees. And they are very clever. They bring along the Herodians. Now the Pharisees hated the Herodians. They hated them. And the Herodians hated the Pharisees. But they joined forces here because, you see, the Pharisees were going to ask a question with political implications and overtones. And the Herodians represented the political side of the nation's life, King Herod and party. They were more or less delegated by Rome uh, to sort of oversee uh, Judea. Quite a bit anyway, not Judea, but um, uh, the Tetrarchy of Philip, I think. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, they certainly represented the political side of the nation's life. Now, they ask a very tricky question indeed. It's not only religious, it's political in its implications. However Christ had answered that question, he would have got involved. Now, the question was this, should we pay taxes? A very good question. Should we pay taxes? Uh, now, um, if the Lord said, like a good patriot, all good patriots said, no, we are the people of God. Why should we be under the yoke of, uh, of occupying Gentile forces? No, we should not. We are sons of God. We are free. If the Lord said, we shouldn't, then they would immediately, the Herodians were there, the Herodians would report him to the governor and there would be immediate trouble. Here was an insurrectionist uh, influencing the people not to pay taxes. If on the other hand he said we should pay taxes, then there would be just as much trouble because all the Pharisees and the Essenes, and as far we don't know so much about the Essenes, but it would seem that they were very sympathetic towards the Lord Jesus, would have been alienated from the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus was once again trapped. And again his answer was brilliant. He didn't say anything, he just asked for a coin. And when they took out the coin and showed him the coin, he said, now then, whose head is on the coin? Well, of course, it was the Caesar's head, the Kaiser's head, that was on the coin. 
So the moment they saw that, he said, therefore, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. No wonder they marveled at him. No one had ever thought of an answer like that. He answered them in a twofold way. They couldn't get out of it. It was brilliant. Give to God what belongs to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now this is a lesson for us too. You must give to your parents what belongs to your parents. You must give to your husband what belongs to your husband. To your wife what belongs to your wife. To your employer what belongs to your employer. To the government what belongs to the government. To the king or the queen what belongs to the queen. And you must give to God what belongs to God. So that whenever there is a conflict of loyalties between God and others, then God comes first. But we have to, and there's so much in the, in the epistles, in the letters, all the way through the New Testament, that deal with husbands and wives and children and parents and employees and employers and church life and, and uh, social life to do with the government and, and some magistrates and all this. You know, we Christians, we overlook very much of this so often, especially if we are involved in deeper teaching. So often, the more we get into deeper teaching, the more we overlook great gaps of the letters and all to do with the practical implications of being a Christian uh, and here it is render unto Caesar what is Caesar's render unto God's what is the God's then the next section from verse 34 to 45 the Pharisees and uh, no sorry they are from verse 23 to 33 the Sadducees come back with a question we are not told that the chief priests or the elders were here this time it's the Sadducees themselves the party itself probably lesser minions now they ask a question to catch the Lord out and this is the question they ask they ask him about the resurrection of the dead now I suppose most of you know that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead they didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in spirits they didn't believe in an afterlife so they thought they'd got the Lord caught on this. They said, now Lord, there was, a, there was a, a, a married woman. She was married to a man who, had, uh, who was one of seven brothers. Uh, the brother died, and according to the law of Moses, she passed to his um, brother. And uh, then he died, she passed to the next brother, and he died, it was all rather extraordinary, passed to the next brother, and went down the whole line, tried a time of it. Um, right down the whole line to the seventh brother and then see, the last one died poor woman she must have been spending her time at the funeral and then finally she died now said the Sadducees with no doubt the whole crowd tittering as uh, I, I understand that the crowds were just the same as they are today they were all very normal and they hadn't had time the crowds to be sort of um, pharisized or Sadducized, they, these were the sort of normal, ordinary people whose spontaneous reaction was quite a normal one. And so they no doubt were tittering over the story. They probably found it extremely funny, and they were getting the point too, because the Sadducees were trying to make out how ridiculous the whole belief in resurrection was, you see. They said to the Lord, Now in heaven, whose wife was she? All seven had, had her. And of course, then, I mean, when the Lord answers, it is once again so spiritually said. All he says is, <clears throat> you poor people, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He says they don't give in marriage nor take in marriage in heaven. They are like the angels. That was one for them. 
<laughs> they didn't believe it. They are like the angels, he said. And then he said, he said, have you never heard, and this must have shocked them because this was the one thing the Sadducees stood on. They stood on the law of Moses. They didn't accept the prophets and they didn't accept the Psalms, but they accepted the law of Moses. He went right back to the law of Moses to the second book and said, have you never read God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob? Now this was an extraordinary thing and shows how carefully we should look at small things in the word of God because we would normally say that if the Lord said I am the God of Abraham of Isaac and Jacob uh, he just meant I was but the Lord says God meant exactly what he said I am in other words they weren't dead Abraham Isaac and, and Jacob were still alive when God spoke to Moses and he said no I was the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob I am they're still here <laughs> They're, they're died, but they're still alive. I am the God. And of course, it says, not the Sadducees, the Sadducees were completely silenced, but it says the crowd marveled at the Lord's teaching. I should think they did after they'd tittered about the story. They probably marveled at the answer. Then uh, the... Um, Next section is from verse 34 to 45. It's the Pharisees' last question and Christ's final silencing of them all. Now, if you turn to that verse 34, read, see how it re reads. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they came together. <laughs> it's quite interesting, isn't it? Normally, they would have loved the Lord's silencing of the Sadducees. Because, you see, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, they believed in angels, they believed in the life to come, and they believed in spirits. And they would have all loved the answer of the Lord normally, but this time they were most upset. And so they came together, and this time they had a lawyer. And as far as we can make out, this man must have been brilliant. This was the last great thrust in all these intrigues they were going to make. And so they must have somehow found one of the most brilliant young lawyers uh, or perhaps an older man, I don't know, in, in the Pharisaic party, and they put him forward. He got a brilliant test question. Which is the greatest of all the commandments? Now the Pharisees, you know, they had, made, they had collected together all the commandments in the Old Testament, and there were thousands of them. And they were so involved that literally no one knew what they were. And that's why we had the Talmud, and that's why we had the scribes whose sole occupation and profession was to sort out this great mass of commandments. Because if you kept one, you were sure to be breaking another. So you had scribes who could work it all out and tell you, and if you wanted to, you didn't want to keep this commandment, you got a scribe to look through them all to find one that nullified it. And you could be pretty sure that in all this great mass of laws there was something that nullified the other. So they got this lawyer to come forward and say, which is the greatest of the, of the laws? Well, normally speaking, in the light of Pharisaic theology, this was a most involved and complex question. And the Lord never even waited. He just simply said this. He said, you shall love, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This 
is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What an answer. Right through all that solid Mount Everest of laws, the Lord put his hand in and took out two, and said, now then, these two are the explanation for the whole. Keep these, and you don't need scribes. Keep these, and you've kept the lot. That's what he was saying. In other words, he was really rendering uh, this highly professional body quite inoperative. There's no need for them. Here you are, he said. I should imagine the crowd simply fell back in astonishment. Well, they thought all these quibbling doctors of the law on every side, spending their time and taking our money. <coughs> and this man just simply answers straight away, this is the key to the whole Old Testament. Mark the little word hangeth in the authorised version, revised version. Upon these two hangeth the law and the prophets. Or in the revised standard version, depends the law. The whole of the Old Testament, in other words, is dependent upon these two. This is the way to keep the law. Don't ever come under law in a legalistic way. Get to the heart of the matter. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, and you're in it. You're keeping it. Then the Lord turns the tables, and all he simply says to them, I want to ask you a question, he says, before you go. And he asked them about a certain psalm, 110 I believe it is, and he says, could you tell me um, who is the Messiah? So they all say chorus together, uh, oh well, the son of David is uh, the Messiah. Then he says, how is it that in Psalm so and so, uh, uh, he calls uh, the, the, the Messiah, is spoken of, the son of David speaks of another as his Lord. How is that? It was a theological question that no one could answer. And it was a theological question as complex and as difficult as anything they'd asked him. How they must have thought, how does this man got it? Never been through the schools, he's never gone through the colleges, and yet somehow or other he's got it all. So, you see, the end of it was this. Verse 43, he said to them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put thine enemies under thy feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? Very good question. And no one was able to answer him a word, not, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him a question. That silenced a whole lot of them. Every single one of them. An extraordinary thing. That's the end of this. Now, we come to the last little section of this, which is chapter 23 from verse 1 to 39, and we call it the great denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. And I should say that this passage is without doubt the most fiery and penetrating denunciation ever preached. It is an unmasking of nominal religion. Put it another way, it's a demolition of empty formalism in the things of God. Now don't just take this as a destruction of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Because, dear brothers and sisters, there are plenty of Christian scribes and Pharisees. Plenty of them. They're everywhere. No doubt we might have some amongst us too. It's in us all. And when you read this, you have here the most powerful and penetrating denunciation of all that is formalistic, merely. All that is empty, but outward. Uh, what Tim Paul says in Timothy, the holding of a form of godliness, but the denying of the power thereof. Outwardly, so good and so righteous and so knowledgeable and so correct and so orthodox, but inwardly, it is an absolute contradiction to everything that is professed by uh, the lips. But inwardly, it is an absolute contradiction to everything that is professed by uh, the lips. Uh, we have to say that uh, I, I know of no message that is so to the point. Uh, I, I must say that if I'd been there, I think I would have simply quaked. I would have only been too glad that day if I wasn't a scribe or a Pharisee. On the day it was actually preached, since their names came into it so many times, scribe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. My, it was so to the point. It was, it's di in, its, in its directness, it was terrible terrible. There was no politeness here of um, the third person. It was absolutely you. Direct. Uh, it's illustrations even when there's humour. And dear friends, don't ever uh, think that the Lord Jesus didn't use humour. Many of his parables are filled with humour. And I have noticed that when we read it in Phillips or in the New English Bible, people spontaneously laugh. And then afterwards they all have a bad turn because they think they're laughing at the word of God. But in actual fact, there's uh, no doubt at all, many of his parables, uh, there was a response from many people that was a one long guffaw. <laughs> because some of them were extraordinarily funny. It's only because of the sentimental ideas we have over years that have made us think that the Lord never indulged in any humour. Can you think of anything more funny than the Lord suddenly saying, you strain out uh, uh, a gnat and swallow a camel? Just because it's scripture, no one thinks it's funny. I think it's screamingly funny. <laughs> if Lindsay Glick had stood up and said, Friends, said, you, 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 you swallow, uh, what shall we say, some little thing, and, uh, and yet you, could, you, you strain out a fly and swallow a, a, a great St. Bernard or something, I mean, you, you'd all sort of well, you'd just die of laughter. The Lord had humor in this, and sometimes humour is the greatest thing. If you, any of you have ever read the original sermons of Luther, some of them were filled with the most terrible humour. <coughs> Nowadays they won't even reprint, reprint them. They cut it all out so people think that Luther was a very sort of sober sort of, oh, God only uses very sober people, you know. But he wasn't. Do you know what he called bishops? Nitzegs that needed cracking. <laughs> One of his great sermons he called them Nitzegs that needed cracking because of their great cone-like hats. <laughs> Do you know what Swingley once preached in the, in the Münster in, in Zurich, which, which uh, nearly cost him his life? 
just at the point of the Reformation. He was talking about divine and holy uh, uh, um, unction. You know, the last rite of the Roman Catholic Church when a person is dying, they call to the priest and they're anointed with oil and so on. And he said, dear friends, and this was from the pulpit, in, in the middle of it, he said, dear friends, better keep it for your salad dressing. <laughs> you see, sometimes humour goes more to the point than something that's solemn. Because people never forget it. When you laugh at something that needs to be laughed at, it cracks up. People say, well, fancy. Fancy is even behaving like that. It's laughable. And when suddenly you think of the, of the Pharisees sort of tithing dill and cumin and these tiny little herbs and the Lord suddenly, no one thinks about it, they think, well, it's quite correct. But then suddenly when the Lord says, you strain out a net and swallow a camel, it's so funny that everyone starts to think. It goes into the heart. Now you've got humour here. Uh, maybe some of the other things may not seem to be quite so humorous. But uh, I'm quite sure that to folk there must have been much humour. But it, it went home. Now even when in his illustrations, in this great message of denunciation, the Lord used humour, it's like the thrust of a sword. It goes right to the heart of the matter. For instance, when the Lord says about them proselytizing, he says, and you make him twofold more the child of hell. Straight to the point. It's an illustration. Think of whited sepulchres. I don't, in this country we don't have such a thing, but when I was in Egypt we saw them everywhere. They gleamed in the sun, gleamed in the sun. Little dome-like things, square with a dome on top, painted brilliant white, whitewashed, perfectly beautiful. The shape so simple and everything. And what the Lord says, how true, I often used to think how beautiful they were. Just their shape and their brilliance and their cleanness in a rather dirty country. And then the Lord says what? He says, you're like whitewashed sepulchres. Outwardly you will be a beautiful, inward you're just dead men's bones. <laughs> I mean, when you think of it, it's exactly true. There's that beautiful little shape, dazzling white, and inside are dead men's bones and all kinds of rottenness goes home. I'd say it's one of the most amazing messages of denunciation ever preached. Its application cannot be avoided. Uh, you can't avoid the application of this message. You scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, there's the application. You can't avoid it. If you're a scribe and a Pharisee, poof, it's hit you. There's the application. You're finished. Well, now, we must note the continual emphasis on the disparity between profession and practice. This is the thing here in this message, you get it. In verse 2, you've got it. Listen. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Disparity between profession and practice. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they're full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Well, there you've got the disparity between profession and possession. 
Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteousness of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. See, that's what they say. Then they murdered the Lord himself. Hmm. Practice, profession, a disparity. Now, that's why the Lord uses this word hypocrite. What does hypocrite mean? Now, in one of the modern versions, they have uh, translated it play actor. And that's exactly what it means. It's a play actor. Someone playing a part. It's not really him. He's playing it. And a hypocrite is someone who's playing a part. They're not, they really haven't got the thing within them. And they're not true within. They're not pure in heart. They're acting something outside. So they're play actors. The word comes from the word pretense. Pretense. It's all a pretense. Now, of course, all of us have to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word in this matter. For the older we get in the law, the more possibility there is that we can start to act something that is not really ours. As we grow in knowledge, we can take on things that are not really our experience. And all unknowingly we become hypocrites, play actors. Now that's what this word is all about. We ought also to note that Christ is not attacking heresy here. This is so important to get clear. He's not attacking heresy. He's attacking orthodoxy. That is an extraordinary thing. He's attacking orthodoxy. The Sadducees were what we might almost say heretical in some of their beliefs, but the Pharisees were orthodox. And what he's really attacking is zealous, fundamentalist, but blind orthodoxy. And that's why five times you get the repetition, blind guide, blind Pharisee, blind. And you know, as a child of God, you can become blind, get a blind spot in our lives. And uh, this is connected with hypocrisy. You see, they, they didn't think they were hypocrites. They were blind. They didn't realize their own real condition in this matter. Well, there you are. The final rejection of God's King and Messiah by the Jews. Now we pass on, for the little time we have left to us this evening, to an introduction to this next section, chapter 24, from verse 1 of chapter 24 to verse 46 of chapter 25. Now, I, I, I am pretty sure that there are very few people here in this room who have any idea of the difficulties in this chapter, especially chapter 24. Um, most of you, I'm quite sure, will look upon this as one of the most thrilling chapters in the New Testament. It's all about the Lord's coming. And you've read it and read it and, and you find it thrilling and exciting and all very simple and plain. But in actual fact, when you start to go under the surface, this chapter is filled with problems and difficulties. And what I'm going to do this evening is I'm going to just give a very brief summary of the, uh, uh, an, introduction, an introductory summary um, of the problems. And then next week we're going to face, we're really going to look at the chapter, these two chapters, and talk together about when is the Lord going to come back, and what are the real signs of his coming, and what are these two chapters to tell us. Because they don't just indulge in lovely signs. There are some people who love signs. You know, second advent of the Lord, the signs. But this chapter, it is very interesting. The most part of this, of these two chapters is taken up with telling us to be ready. 
<laughs> no signs, but telling us to be ready for the coming of the Lord. And that's the thing that matters. You can know all the signs in the world, but if you're not ready, it's no, no point. The Lord gave us the signs not to tickle our fancy and imagination, but to make us ready for his coming so that we would be in spiritually intelligent as to when the coming of the Lord was drawing near. Now, with these two chapters, 24 and 25, which contain the fifth and last discourse in the Gospel according to Matthew, we come to the end of this third major division, which I've entitled uh, The Realization of the Kingdom, uh, to be through Calvary uh, alone. Now, the underlying emphasis in all the way through this major division from chapter 16 right the way through to chapter 25 the end of chapter 25 has been just that the realization of the kingdom is to be through Calvary what do we mean by the realization of the kingdom? we mean this we mean that the only way God can obtain the kingdom and bring the kingdom to us and us into the kingdom and give us a place and a position in the kingdom is through the cross. Now make no mistake about it, there's no shortcut. There is only no short, there was only no short, there was only not only no shortcut um, to um, uh, bringing the kingdom to this earth, onto this earth, than through Calvary. But there is no shortcut for you and I ever coming to the throne or to the crown except through Christ crucified. Now let us make that quite clear. In the first part of this great division we saw a, we had a revelation of God's eternal objective and purpose. Then immediately in the next section we were told about the way to its fulfillment. And then we were led, which was to be Calvary. And then we went on to the transfiguration and we saw a man going into the glory. The Shekinah glory. God's ancient glory filled him. And then we saw that man deliberately turning round and coming back down to the earth to go to Calvary. Because there was no other way to bring the kingdom, not even the glory. There would have only been one man in the kingdom. He turned round and he came back to this earth in order to bring the kingdom to us and us into the kingdom. That the God may, may, may see uh, an innumerable multitude redeemed through the precious blood of his Son. Then from there we went to characteristics of the kingdom. And there we found out that if you and I want to get anywhere in the kingdom, if we want to get any authority, if we want to come to the throne, if we want to wear a crown, if we want any area to rule over or anything else, we have got to go through Calvary. Sacrificial service. Sacrifice is the very basis of God's throne. It's exemplified in the king himself. And therefore it is to be exemplified in every one of us who have been made kings and priests unto God. Now we've come, we've just finished the final rejection of uh, God's king and Messiah by the Jews. Now you say to me, what's that got to do with the realization of the kingdom to be through Calvary? Well, I'll tell you. Because you see, it was the final rejection of the Jews, of their king and Messiah, which led to his crucifixion. It, it, they became, it became instrumental in crucifying the Lord of glory and thus became the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. They crucified 
the Prince of Glory. Now then, um, that's why we have this final rejection of God's uh, King and Messiah here, you see, because that's, that is Isaiah chapter 53. And it is Psalm 22. And it is Zechariah uh, 13. These chapters and many others uh, are fulfilled in the rejection by the Jewish people of their King and Messiah, which led to his crucifixion. When they rejected the Lord and the Lord denounced them, the door was closed and there was only one alternative. Crucifixion. There was no other way. Now, with this chapter 23 of Matthew, the door clangs shut. Now there is no more possibility of reconciliation. Now you come to the final section, and this is so wonderful, the final coming of God's King and King. That's chapter 24 and 25. You see, the wonderful thing is this, and let's underline this, it's got something to say to us. Um, <coughs> the rejection of the King and Messiah by the Jews does not alter one bit the fact of the coming of God's kingdom. That is the wonderful nature of God's sovereignty. It is not altered one single digit. The final coming of God's kingdom will be absolutely on time. The Son doesn't know it. The angels do not know the time. Only the Father knows the time. But it will come absolutely on time. So when the Lord Jesus returns, he will be on time. Let's get this quite clear. It is not something at the mercy of human frailty or human unbelief or human caprice. It's, it's consummation, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's, it's glory, it's coming, it's final coming lies wholly within the sovereignty of God. Hallelujah. Isn't that something? It's not as if someone like Stalin in the old days or Hitler can stop the coming of the kingdom of God. It'll come and it'll crush them to dust. And at the end of the age there will be someone far worse than Nero or, or, or Stalin or Hitler or any other of those tyrants. It will be the man of sin, the Antichrist. And the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth. Stone will fall upon him and grind him to powder in the end. The kingdom's going to come, it's going to come on time and it's going to come exactly when it's at the worst point. <laughs> when all of us will say, is it possible? the king will come just at that point so um, if you want to have a lovely rosy future you better leave because if we are at the end of the age then it's grim the outlook if you're centred on this earth but if your centre is in the king it's glorious the worse it gets the more we'll praise because we know that he's coming and at the darkest part of the night he will return now a um, few other things about this chapter it is interesting to note the direct relationship of these two chapters with the preceding section it was a prediction of the destruction of the temple as Christ was leaving it finally that prompted the disciples to 
privately ask him uh, this question about the future. Now you will remember that they were marvelling at the buildings, they were showing the Lord the buildings, as they were walking out he already knew them, but I suppose one or two of them with a finer eye perhaps for beauty and uh, architectural beauty and other things, they were stopping and saying, well look at that, look how beautiful it is. Josephus tells us that the outside of the temple was as one of the sights of the world. And some of the stones were at least 30 feet long. And so they were stopping as they were going at the others and they would say, just look at those stones, look at them, you see. And, my, and they caught the Lord's attention. Look, they said, look, isn't it beautiful? Look at these stones. How did they do it? And it was then that the Lord said, I tell you, not one of these stones will remain one on top of the other. They will all be thrown down. Now, like, always like the disciples, they didn't dare ask him. They all just fell silent, evidently, and never said a word. But they must have talked amongst themselves, as we all do. And as they were on the way, they must have said, what did he mean? So, Mark tells us, not um, Matthew, that it wasn't all the disciples, but four of them went privately to him. Andrew, Peter, James and John, it tells us in Mark chapter 13, verse 3, they went secretly and privately to the Lord. They said, Lord, when will this destruction of the temple be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end, the close of uh, the age? Now the contents of these chapters, and especially um, chapter 24, the first 35 verses have been the subject of very much discussion indeed. All agree that Christ speaks of Jerusalem's destruction and the end of the age. It is where we should mark the division between these two things, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. Where do we actually put the division, you see? Where does he talk about Jerusalem's destruction, which is past? And where does he speak about the end, which is coming? Where do we put the division? Where do we define the two parts in this uh, discourse. It has been where to um, divide the discourse into these two parts that has been the, the occasion of so much difference of opinion. Some would say, now here are the different views on this, some would say that most of the first part of Matthew chapter 24 has been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD which was colossal and complete. And at that point, at 70 AD, it was the end of the Jewish homeland and the end of the Jewish commonwealth. They were dispersed throughout the nations and until recently have remained dispersed throughout uh, the nations. Some would put the point at verse 22 and they would say in chapter 24, verse 22, is where um, the fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem uh, ends and from there on is the second coming of the Lord. Others would say verse 28 is the division. Others would say verse 35. Now, you might think, well, what on earth are they all talking about? It seems quite clear. But if you look at it, you will find it's not nearly as clear um, as that. Others, on the other hand, say that this, the first part of Matthew chapter 24 refers to a yet future destruction of Jerusalem at the end of this age. 
and that the whole section deals with the second coming of Christ in its completeness. The whole thing is to do with the second coming of Christ and not to be understood as, to, as having been fulfilled in the first. Now, what can we say about this? Well, firstly, we must say on the one hand that the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersal of the Jewish people throughout the inhabited world, it was certainly most remarkably fulfilled, was a most, was certainly a most remarkable fulfillment in detail of these verses. Now we have to say that. I, I had the time this evening to tell you exactly what did happen in the destruction of Jerusalem, but it was, there's no doubt, there was a very real fulfillment of these verses. If we know, for instance, that the Christians escaped the, the, the destruction through this chapter. It was because of this very thing that most of the Christians escaped the destruction in 70 AD. They were alive to it, and they got out. Uh, most of them didn't actually go up into the mountains, but they went to a place at the foot of the mountains, and there they were saved. Well, we, we, we can say that. But, if you take this chapter, there are a number of points we can say it satisfies, or there are others that it doesn't. For instance, these are the, the verses it satisfies completely if it's been fulfilled in the destruction. Verse 10, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. One of the most remarkable things about the destruction of Jerusalem was not the Roman army's cruelty, but the terrible, bitter jealousy and rivalry within the Jewish camp. So much so that they ended up by committing atrocities on one another that were unheard of. And this is thought to be uh, remarkably, uh, a remarkable fulfillment of this uh, verse. And then again, um, <laughs> verse um, 15. So when you see the, desolation, the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, well, we know that the, when they marched finally into the temple, they set up an idol on the brazen altar and offered sacrifices to it and so on. We know that. And uh, uh, that is thought to be the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place. The banners of the Roman army were brought just within the, the gate of the temple and uh, sacrifices were offered up to them as well. All this was thought to be the abomination of desolation. That is fulfilled certainly in that. Verse 20. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now this has no meaning today. Not even really in Israel now. Because for the most part it is very, very liberal in its attitude to the Sabbath. But in the days of our Lord, in the New Testament age, Sabbath was the Sabbath. And if, as so often happened, the terrible last great drive of foreign armies coincided with the Sabbath, the destruction of the Jews was terrible. This is, this is how Antiochus Epiphanes, the archetype of Antichrist, destroyed the Jews. He marched in on the Sabbath. He knew they wouldn't fight. And uh, so the Lord says to them uh, that it may not be on the Sabbath. Now, this has no meaning for us today. <laughs> so therefore, people say this must be a prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. Because certainly uh, it has meaning 
for them. Then verse um, uh, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Now they say, now they, well, there is the key to these verses. This generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Now they say, therefore, it must have been the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. But, on the other hand, there are some very large and thorny problems, and I'm just going to leave them with you for next week. First of all, there is verse 9. Listen to this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And what's that got to do with the Jews? And nothing to do with him. The Roman armies didn't do it because of Christ's name. For my name's sake. Surely, therefore, it must refer to something future. For my name's sake. Now, um, to add to your problems, verse 14. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testament to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, it is true that by 70 AD, in all probability, the gospel had certainly reached all the inhabited world around the Mediterranean. It may even have reached the British Isles. Uh, If we believe tradition, the Apostle Thomas had taken it to India. And it had already started right across Central Asia. So, some would say that this was fulfilled, but isn't there something a little different? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't know, there's a feeling of that somehow reaching out beyond uh, that rather more limited evangelization of that day. Then I want you to, to, to look at verse um, um, 21 and 22. Now this I do find hard to swallow. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. But for the elect sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. The New English Bible says no living thing. Now, in the light of nuclear war, of course, we understand those verses in an altogether new way. If the days are not shortened, nothing will be saved. There'll be no people for God to come back to, for the Lord to come back to. We'll all be just, we'll have gone up in a holocaust, you see. Now, what does it mean when it says that the tribulation such has never been? I mean, people have pointed out that what the Jews went through in the last war was surely worse than what they suffered at Jerusalem. Certainly, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the most terrible uh, period of tribulation the Jewish people went through up to that point. That is true. But I I don't know whether we can say that it's a complete fulfillment of those verses. Do you? I I say that those verses to me suggest something more than just then. Then, if you will look at verse 29 immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken that did not happen then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory now one commentator says well the sun was blotted out when the Lord Jesus was crucified but I mean it's really it's not what this says here it says after this tremendous tribulation at the destruction of Jerusalem, the sun will be darkened, moon and stars and so on, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in, in the clouds with great power and glory. 
Now, there is a point, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four, wi four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It couldn't be clearer, could it? That seems definitely to refer to the end. Then verse 33, So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near even at the gates. Now you've got a real problem on your hands. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. Those stand, what, he, what does he say? This generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Now, what is the Lord talking about? We've got a real problem on our hands now, haven't we? And firstly, a superficial reading is also simple and easy. Now we look at it, my, it's not so easy and simple at all. What is the answer? Where we ought to bear in mind clearly the question which Christ answers. Now this is very important. What is the question that Christ answers? It, in verse 3, it was twofold. It was twofold. Here it is, two parts of the question. When would the temple be destroyed? That's the first part of the question. The second, what would be the sign of his coming and the close of the age? Now you've got two distinct questions, haven't you there? What would be the destruction? When would be the destruction of the temple? What would be the sign of his coming and the close of this age? If we bear those two in mind, it helps us at least a little. It is quite clear from, from the question that we have here in these first verses of chapter 24, the first 35 verses, we have prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple fulfilled in 70 AD and signs of Christ's final coming and the close, the consummation of the age. It also seems, and I'm going to end here, don't worry, it also seems as clear to me that we cannot just carve up these two chapters, 24 and 25, into two clearly defined parts and say, this is all fulfilled in the past and this is all to do with the future. I don't think we can do it. Because if we do that, we, we land ourselves up with very great problems. We've got to squirm out of certain scriptures. We've got to adjust somehow to them. We've got to find theories of adjustment and so on. We can't do it. What I would say is this. We have in the first part of Matthew chapter 24, uh, in the prophecy there, a first fulfillment in the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the, and the destruction of the Jewish commonwealth. We have a first fulfillment which is both the sha a shadow and the key to a much greater and larger fulfillment in the future. Now, I think most of you know, um, I personally believe in this um, way of looking at prophecy that again and again in scripture you have a first fulfillment and a second fulfillment I could give you example after example of this in the Old Testament where there are things that are prophesied which have been fulfilled and yet have within them something much greater which still lies ahead and I am quite sure that we must look upon these first 35 verses in this light they have been remarkably fulfilled in detail in the first in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation in 70 AD. But it looks beyond to something much, much more at the end of this age. 
if this is accepted, nearly all of our difficulties disappear in an instant. They all disappear. <laughs> For we can accept what it says about 70 AD, and we can also accept what it cannot be related to there, but looks for head. So we kill two birds with one stone. Thank the Lord for that. I hope you can all accept it, otherwise you must go on with your problems and difficulties. But if you can accept it, you've killed the two birds with one stone, and you can both see a glorious fulfilment in the past, and a yet more glorious fulfilment in the future. We ought to note one, two other little points before we close. One is this, Christ continually says, you, throughout the whole of this chapter, he says, you, 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 right the way through extraordinarily enough in the first 35 verses in the last part of Matthew 24 and chapter 25 he hardly says you at all now who is the you does it refer to the Jews or does it refer to the disciples well who were the people who went there were four disciples the Lord was speaking to Andrew, Peter, James, John they were disciples, not Jews. He wasn't talking to great public crowds. He wasn't speaking in the open air. He was, he was speaking in the open air, but he wasn't speaking during an open air meeting. He was speaking to four privately on the Mount Olivet. Now the you refers to disciples. Now we must understand that. And therefore we get that wonderful word, for the elect's sake, it shall be shortened. Who are the elect? The elect are the chosen people of God under both covenants, old and new the Alexei, the true Israel of God. The last point I wish to make is this. In, in chapter 24, verse 32, we read, from the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Now I want to ask you, why a fig tree? Why a fig tree? Those people who say that this refers to the past, they say, ah, well, now the fig tree, the Lord just took the fig tree as an example. I mean, it was a sign of summer coming, that's all. Mustn't, take any, mustn't read any more into it. Just a fig tree. And the fig tree, when it puts forth its leaves, that's a sign of summer's coming. You mustn't press it beyond that. The people who believe in the Jewish future, they all say, ah, the fig tree is a sign of the Jewish people. But I must ask you a question, why did the Lord select a fig tree and give us all this problem? If it was only the summer, why didn't he say an almond tree or something else or some other kind of tree? Why a fig tree? Now, I'm not being silly or fanciful because in Luke chapter 21 and verse 29, the Lord says, see the fig tree and the other trees. So he could have quite easily said, look at the trees. In other words, look at them all in mass. Why does he select the fig tree and the other trees? Focusing our attention upon the fig tree. Surely it has something to do with Matthew 21, the withering of the fig tree. Withering up. Symbol of the Jewish people, of the covenant people of God. When you see the fig tree, well now how shall we look at it? Shall we look at it as something to do in connection with the Jewish people at the end of the age, a great ingathering of the Jewish people into the body of Christ? The fig tree? I do not believe the fig tree is the symbol of the Jewish people. I believe the fig tree is the symbol of the covenant people of God. In one sense, the old covenant, it was withered up and rejected. Now we are the fig tree. But nevertheless, I don't know whether we should look for a great revival at the end of the age. The fig tree putting forth its leaves. This is where Eva Stuart Watts started that great world revival fellowship on these verses. See? 
latter rain, she called it. The fig tree putting forth its leaves, the covenant people of God. But I believe here we've got something about um, the elect people of God that somehow or other something's going to happen at the end. There's more in this chapter than any of you, that any of us realize, much more. Do you know it came to me as a shock when I read the same account in Luke? Do you know what it says? It says about Jerusalem shall be encompassed by armies and you shall see the desolating sacrilege in the, in the holy place and Jerusalem shall be destroyed and listen and trodden down by the Gentiles until the trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Dear friends, one month ago, I don't even know if it was one month ago, Jerusalem was taken by the Jews for the first time into their sovereignty for 2,000 years. Now, does that mean the times of the Gentiles has finished? For the first time in two millenniums, Jerusalem is under the sovereignty of the Jewish people. Holy. Every single part of it. And I'm glad to hear they say they're not going to let it go either. You see? Now, isn't that matter? And this is the very chapter we're studying. Um, and it says, it shall be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, now you all look a bit sleepy, and I don't blame you, but you know, you are witnessing miracles, and you don't know it. You open your paper, and there it says, the Jews have taken the whole of Jerusalem, and, they, and the Jews pour into the wailing wall, and wail at the wall again, for the first time in years, and, and now they have, have passed laws to the Knesset, to, to see that Jerusalem shall forever remain Jewish. Remember, not all through these two millenniums have the Jews uh, actually had the administration of Jerusalem in their hands. The times of the Gentiles. This is the very chapter we're talking about. Does that mean the end is near? Think about it. I'm not trying to fight you. Think about it. If, you, if there's no sin in your life and if you're walking before God there's nothing but joy in the thought it might be much nearer than you realize the times of the Gentiles may have finished I have wondered myself I said it uh, a week or two ago in an after time I wonder whether the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled it's only this last week reading in Luke I suddenly thought it was a, it was a shock to me <laughs> it was a shock to me I thought my goodness my goodness Jerusalem is no longer in Gentile hands. It's back in the hands of the Jewish people. Now, may that just make you realize what kind of subject we're studying. We're studying something that is full of practical content. These two chapters, the final coming of the king and the kingdom. Oh, it's thrilling. Isn't it thrilling? I mean, we've studied the whole gospel according to Matthew. It's all about the king and all about the kingdom. And now we've got to it. The final coming of the king and the kingdom. What will it be, says an old hymn, when the king comes? You ready? Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we pray that thou wouldst really write into our hearts something of the seriousness of, of these prophecies. 
And Lord, we are living in, in amazing days. We can say also that many prophets and others have longed to see these things being fulfilled. Oh Lord, how privileged we are to live in these days of darkness and trial and, and difficulty. But at the same time, Lord, days when thy word is being fulfilled before our eyes in a miraculous way. Lord, we worship thee. And we pray together that thou wouldst open our eyes to understand the nature of this part of thy word. And that thou wouldst write upon it, upon our hearts, its lessons. Mm -hmm. Above all, Lord, we may not just be caught up with the signs and the technical side, but Lord, we may be purified by that blessed hope. We may be made ready for the coming of the King. Lord, help us. And may it be that as we take up our cross and follow thee by the Holy Spirit, so we shall be, pre be prepared for the kingdom and for responsibility within the kingdom. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.